You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. And as they do so, for those of you who are newer here at Grace and maybe are wondering um, why my wife and I have not been around in the last several weeks, it's because we've had a series of very difficult things happen in our life, a series of losses. First, um, my, my wife's mom um, went into the hospital and then into hospice, and then um, shortly after she passed away, my dad um, went into hospice, and then when he was in hospice, we lost an uncle on Jamie's side of the family who we're close to, and then my mom fell and broke her hip in the midst of all that. So it was just you know one thing after another. And yet, in the face of all this difficulty and all this heartache, there was something very exciting and so joyous that happened in December that unfortunately, just due to the events, got overshadowed a little bit. But I'm very excited to tell you that our oldest daughter, Kiana, um, got engaged to this fine young man, Chris Westby. And this happened mid-December. Yeah, we're just so excited about this. But this happened literally the day before Jamie's mom went into the hospital and that succession of events that happened. But we're very excited about this. We love Chris. We love the Westby family. They worship here at Grace. We're thrilled to have a deeper connection to them, thrilled to um, welcome Chris into our family and the wedding will be later on this summer. So that's, that's fun stuff and we're, we're, we're going after that with both hands now. But that being said, a wedding, a wedding like Chris and Kiana's that is coming, is one of the closest things we have to a covenant in our culture. And you're going to hear that word covenant a lot in this passage that we're going to wrestle through today. And a covenant is more than a contract, which is what marriage sometimes gets reduced to. It's even more than a commitment. It really is a very deep promise. And we're going to look at two covenants, two promises, and how they work together in this passage today. The promise that God made to Abraham, the Abrahamic promise, and the promise that God made to the people through Moses, through the giving of the law. And at first glance, when you come to a passage like this, and I mentioned this in my Facebook sermon preview this week that we posted, it's tempting to come to a passage like this and just to kind of read on by it, maybe skip over it, maybe fast forward through it, because it's layered and somewhat complicated and somewhat challenging to understand. And honestly, it kind of feels like blah, blah, blah. Okay, let's get to the more practical stuff. Nothing could be further from the truth. This passage is profoundly relevant and profoundly practical for you and me. And that's why it's so important for us to take a swing at understanding it and applying it to our lives, because it's really going to speak to two extremes that we see quite often in our culture, extremes that are broken, but that proclaim to be a path to a right relationship with God. The first is like this, and the Apostle Paul in this letter has been talking a lot about this, but this one is the, the promise of, the empty promise of empty religion that says, the path to God is through rules and regulations and doing this and not doing that adhering to this creed or that type of code, that is the pathway to right relationship with God. 
Paul's been speaking to that. But there's another extreme that this also speaks to that is very prevalent in our culture. I would submit to you it's more prevalent than that. And this extreme is this. God is a God of love, which he is. And because God is a God of love, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day how you live your life. So you can decide for yourself what's right and wrong. And, you know, God is a forgiving God, so he will let you pick and choose. He kind of grades on a curve, and there are good people and bad people, and clearly you're one of the good people, and God's lucky to have you on his team because you say you believe in him. So you can just kind of live however you want. And I've overstated that, but that message is so prevalent in our culture. This passage will speak to both those extremes. And it will help us understand what is this fusion, what is this partnership between the law and God's grace? Because that is extremely practical for your life and mine. What is the pathway to right relationship with God? Well, Paul is going to pick up the same argument he's been making and he's going to try to illustrate it and help us understand it in different ways. So if you still have your phone out, don't be looking at the website and playing with the new website during the sermon, but rather go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. We're going to pick up where Gabe Myers left off for us last week, and we're going to look at this passage together. Let me, let me read it to you. So brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Well, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up, until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Clear as mud, right? Okay. But let's begin to work our way through some of that for a bit. And let's start with a question. So in the prioritization of things, were the people prioritizing the promise to Abraham or the promise to Moses and the people through the law? They had them in the wrong order. They were saying this preceded this. And Paul was reminding them, uh, no, 
the promise to Abraham was made some 430 years and some change before the law was given to Moses and the people. So we got to start here. Which then begs the question, so what was the promise that was made to Abraham? And why does it matter? So let's go back there. There were many elements to this promise. If you'll remember with me back to Genesis, which is where this comes from, and if this isn't familiar to you, I would put a shameless plug in there to go back to our archived Genesis series on the new website and listen to, once again, the origin of these promises. But here were the pieces of these, this promise to, to Abraham. He was promised offspring, which was an amazing promise because at the time, he and Sarah were extremely old and had no kids. So how was that going to work? Miracle of God. It promised blessing for him, a great name, blessing or cursing, depending on how one treated Abraham. There was land that was promised to him. The blessing of all people would eventually come through him. God would be God to his people, and there would actually be kings descending from Abraham. So here's this amazing, unconditional promise, but it does come with a condition, actually several. There are pieces of this that were very conditional, but the promise itself was a done deal. That was unconditional. So here's the question. What did Abraham do to earn this promise? And the answer, nothing. From what we can understand with how Abraham's life is explained to us, he was most likely a polytheistic pagan in a culture that was far from God. He was probably worshiping many false gods. There's nothing that tells us that Abraham did anything to earn this. God chose to bless him. Abraham didn't earn it. He didn't merit it. God chose to give this incredible promise and gift to him. So, well, the so, if you caught it, was mentioned in what precedes this earlier in the chapter. So who cares? What does this matter to us? Well, this is why it matters. So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now hear this. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, anyone who isn't a Jew, by faith and announced the good news, the gospel, in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of God. What did Abraham have to do to receive this gift? Belief. Right? He, he had to receive it by believing it. So if you weren't here last week, we baptized a number of people. And really what baptism is intended to be is an outward expression of the inward change that has happened in your life because you have chosen to believe God and have become transformed by him coming into your life. And so you weren't in last service last week, so you missed out on seeing those baptisms. So our production team, namely Jim Chase, our producer, has compiled snippets of all the baptisms from last week and I'd like you to watch these, not only to celebrate the life change here, but I want you to look for what is the common denominator 
that runs through every one of these baptisms and how it relates to what we're talking about here. Let's roll that video. Why do you want to get baptized? Because I want people to know I love and believe in Jesus. Why do you want to be baptized today? To show that I believe and know that Jesus died for us, for my sins. Because I believe in him. It's a way to show everyone that Jesus is in your heart and it's a picture that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. You do believe that Jesus died for your sins and empowers you to live for him? Yeah. Willa received Christ at a Young Life camp and um, just been growing ever since. So, Willa, you, you do believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior. You trust him. I love and believe in Jesus. Hi, my name's Harold Mogg. And I uh, got the calling for Christ out of my pasture feeding my sheep. Uh, I pray God for everything, you know, for saving a soul like mine. <laughs> you, you're trusting him for your salvation in your daily walk. Yes. All right, brother. Well, by the, because of your profession of faith, you're going to step up here. <laughs> I'll buckle those knees on me. Because of your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, I baptize you today in the name of the Father. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son, and the Holy Spirit. Isn't that great? Ah, it's so fun. I love baptism. So, back to our question. What is the common denominator that runs through every one of those stories? And I'll give you a hint. It was on their shirt. <laughs> they believed, right? And that's the point. Did they do anything to earn Christ's love? No. Did they do anything to merit God's grace? No. It's a gift. You don't do anything to earn that. But they did have to respond. By believing. That's why we say that the gift of God's salvation, the, the good news of Jesus Christ coming into this world, pursuing us, drawing us, ultimately dying on a cross in our place to remove our sins and to give, a, give us his righteousness isn't something we earn, but it is something we have to make our own. You need to believe. Unconditional gift with a condition. So, do you and I appreciate what that really means? Because this message is different than every other message out there. Literally anyone, at any time, in any place, can become a child of God by receiving the gift of God's grace into their life. And that's the first thing Paul is underscoring here, is God's acceptance of us is based on his gift of grace and our response a belief. And that is so fundamentally important because, my friends, there are many counterfeits out there. Many. Our son works for um, Loomis, 
Um, you'll know them by their armored cars, Loomis Armored Car. That's not the name of the, the, the company. But every day, all day, he's counting coins. And he's running machines that empty the, the coin machines in various places. And I remember when he first started that job and him beginning to tell us, Dad, you would not believe the fake coins that make their way into circulation. And he said, they look just like the real thing. They feel just like the real thing. And I said, well, how can you tell the difference? And I thought what he said was so wise and so insightful and so applicable for you and me because I know what the real thing looks like. I know what the original is. And Matt called us to this rightfully a couple weeks ago for those of you who are here. There are so many counterfeits out there that will tell you this is the way to a relationship with God. And they're absolutely not true. And the way you can discern those is to know what's real. And you know what's real by knowing the word of God. You and I need to read the word of God, listen to the word of God, assimilate and absorb the word of God, memorize the word of God, because the more you know God's truth, the more you will be able to discern and determine what's a counterfeit and, and what's not. Because how many of us have heard this in some way, shape, or form? Well, you know, the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment and condemnation. He's harsh. I don't want anything to do with that God, but the God of the New Testament. Now we're talking. That's a God of love and grace. So I like the New Testament God, not so much the Old Testament God. But the reality is they are the same God. So how does that work? Well, the extreme that, again, I think is very prevalent in our culture is that, well, you know, God loves us, so therefore, you know, we, we do him a solid every so often, try to be a good person, and that's good enough. And at the end of the day, if we unpack that, what we're really saying is, yeah, you believe to a point. But I'll pick and choose and decide for myself what, what really matters. And that is, a, that is a counterfeit gospel. But it does beg the question then, okay, well, if that's not right, then how do we make sense out of this law that was, that was given to, to God's people? Sure feels like a list of do's and don'ts and restrictions and rules. And, but we already saw, and Paul has been arguing, that's not the pathway fully to right relationship with God. And Gabe introduced this to us last week. Do you remember, for those of you who were here, he described how, in history, when God had freed the people from Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai, in Exodus 19 and 20 in the Old Testament, he invites them into relationship with him. And what do they say? Uh, no, because they were afraid of him. Not in terms of reverential fear, holy fear, the kind of fear and respectful fear that we should have of God, but the fear of, we don't want anything to do with you. No, thank you. And so the law was introduced because of that troubled relationship. Maybe this will help. Gary Brashears has used this, another one of our preachers has used this example, and it's been very helpful to me to understand this. But let's say you have an adopted child, and they become a teenager, and now it's time for them to learn how to drive. 
And so they learn how to drive, and so you enter into an agreement with them, and I'm sure this never happened in your home, but you say, you need to be home and have the car home at a reasonable hour. Okay, Dad. Okay, Mom. So they go, and they come home at 4 a.m. the next morning. And so you have another conversation with them, and I'm sure this is the part that never happened in your home, but you say, wow, you know, we kind of missed each other on that one. How you define reasonable and I define reasonable is very different. And so here's the deal. Now I'm going to give you some guidance, and you will have the car home by 10 o'clock every night. And if you do, you will get the blessing of having that car. But if you do not, have the car home by 10 p.m. Did I say a.m.? 10 p.m. We'll be a little kinder. 10 p.m. Then you're going to lose the car and you'll be punished accordingly. The law was introduced because the people would not trust God and would not come to him on his terms. It was a troubled relationship. And so the law was put into effect to try to guide and lead the people back to a right relationship with God. And this is the reality that the law reminds us of, is that apart from Jesus Christ, apart with right relationship with God through him, we were all imprisoned by sin. Did you catch that in this passage? Paul is once again underscoring this reality. And you know, sin is kind of a, a church word, don't hear it very often, outside of church circles sometimes, but sin is really, it's the core of us. It's, it's selfishness. It's self-focus. It's self-absorption. It's the reality that left to our own, nine times out of 10, apart from Jesus Christ, we're gonna do what's best for us, not necessarily what's best for God or best for other people. At our core, we are profoundly selfish. And this reality unites all of us that we all start out apart from right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, pretty selfish, broken people. And I think there's a reason why in Romans chapter 12, verse three in the New Testament, it says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to, because what do we do? We tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, especially when I think when it comes to this. A number of people who don't know God are convinced that God's pretty lucky to have them on the team. And that's kind of the attitude that we don't really need to be trained to know how to do, we just kind of do. I mean, let's take this for a test drive for a minute. Apart from Jesus Christ, are you a good person who occasionally does bad things? Or are you a bad person who occasionally does good things? I can just hear it because I've had these conversations before with folks. Oh, you know what? That's what I hate about the Bible. That's what I hate about Christianity. That's that God of the Old Testament, or, yeah, the God of the Old Testament stuff who's always trying to make us feel worse than we really are and trying to tell us what bad people we are. Um, no. How about being realistic about the kind of people we all are? Because the reality of sin and this brokenness that permeates and pervades our hearts and lives is that it's way more than behavior. We like to reduce it to that, but it's motives, it's values, it's what you think, not just about what you do or don't do. 
And I'll never forget this quote from the, the great Billy Graham who's with the Lord now, but I, I just remember reading it going, really? And then I remember thinking about it going, yeah, that is right. But he said, I don't think I've ever done anything with a pure motive in my life. Because of the battle of sin that, that rages within all of us. So where are we going with this? Well, here's the deal. If you don't think that you have that significant of a sin problem, then God's grace isn't going to mean much to you. This isn't about making you feel bad as a person. This is about having a very realistic appraisal of what is. And you will only appreciate and know and experience God's grace when you appreciate how badly you need it and how much your life depends on it. So one of the issues, though, in all this was the law guided behavior, but it couldn't change motives. It could some degree change values, but it couldn't fully change the human heart, which then begs the reasonable question, so why did God give the law in the first place? And Paul begins to answer this in this letter. For starters, he reminds us that the law was given to restrain sin. Because how do you know if something's selfish or self-focused? Because so often we're blinded by that how often do we not recognize and realize what sin is unless we're told what it is? But it was also given to reveal sin and our need for a savior, and that's really, really big. Because you see, the Galatian folks, the Galatian church were going back to make the law do something that it was never intended to do. By way of example, when my dad entered into hospice, and we got him home that night, you know, got the hospital bed, all the equipment set up. My sister and I went home for the night. She lives about a mile away. My folks live on the west side. And uh, I went home. And I remember thinking, oh, man, I'd, how is this going to work? Because my mom was going to be his caregiver and we were going to help, of course. But my dad was still at a place where we were trying to transfer him from the bed to the bathroom and he really couldn't walk and support his weight. I could barely move him and I'm a little bigger and stronger than my mom. And so I thought, how is this gonna work? And I just had this nagging feeling, this is not gonna work. So I remember coming home and it took about an hour to drive home and literally sitting down on the couch and turning to my wife, Jamie, and saying, Jamie, I really don't know how this is going to work. I'm not sure I should have left tonight. And then the phone rings from my sister. And she says, are you sitting down? I said, yeah. And she said, good, you're going to want to. I said, okay, yeah, I'm sitting down. Hit me with it. And she said, mom was trying to transfer dad, and he fell on her, and she broke her hip. So my mom with a broken hip somehow manages to crawl underneath my dad, crawl over across the room to a chair and calls my sister and my sister again who lives a mile away is instantly there and they call an ambulance and so my mom gets taken up to St. V's. And so Jamie and I once again make the trek across town. It's sometime after midnight now. And we're in the ER and the doctor comes in with an x-ray and he says, I'm really sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but you have a broken hip. You're going to need a full hip replacement. Now, what were our expectations for that x-ray? 
to reveal the problem, but to not be the cure. And Matt used a similar illustration a couple weeks ago when he said an MRI machine shows you the problem, but it is not the cure. And in a very real sense, that was the purpose of the law, to show the problem and to point to the cure. And the cure was a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. You see, the reality is not if you need a Savior, but who your Savior or your Savior is. That's the real question. Because all of us, all of us in our lives are looking to something or someone to be our Savior. Someone or something gets your focus, your attention, your resources. It, in all intent and purposes, is the purpose, the foundation of your life. The question isn't if you have a Savior. The real question is, who is that Savior? And we have these functional Saviors that we turn to. In this climate right now of politics, because it is an election year and, you know, ads and debates and, you know, it's constantly in the news cycle for sure. It's that time of year. But I am once again drawn to the reality of how many people in our broken world that we all live in are looking to a political savior. You know, you've got folks feeling the burn and they are convinced Bernie is the answer. And you've got folks who are Trump supporters and they think, you know, four more years is what we need. And then you have folks who are behind other candidates. And then you have folks who I don't know what to vote for, but we're in trouble and we need someone to fix it. What are we really looking to in this election? How deeply are we expecting this person to truly be the answer for us? Politics has its place, but is it the ultimate thing? And in this several-week time of struggle and loss and just loss after loss and reality checks, over and over again, Jamie and I were confronted with the question, do you really believe what you say you do? Because that's the bottom line question. And you know, vacations are great. And I love being a pastor. I love, I like to work. I really do. And I like to be your pastor. Love it, actually. And food is really good. And I've had too much of it in the last several weeks. All those are good things. But they can become ultimate things. And once again, my heart was exposed and I was necessarily asked the question, who is your real savior? What really matters in the face of all these losses? We all need a savior. And we all have a savior. But is that savior Jesus? Because the law was always intended to point to him and to prepare the people for him. And that's one of Paul's main points here. So now we see more of the balance between God's acceptance and God's approval or the law and grace, to put it another way. God's approval of us is based on trusting and obeying him. Jesus himself said, if you love me, and he said it three times in case we missed it in the Gospel of John, if you love me, you will what? You will obey what I command. 
You see, you and I cannot say, oh yeah, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, and then live our lives however we want because what we're really saying is, no, you don't really believe in Jesus. Not the way the Bible talks about it. Belief in Scripture isn't just a mental assent. Belief is an all-in, whole-life commitment. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. And that's a one-time thing where we choose to receive him into our lives as Lord and Savior, but it's an everyday thing of choosing to believe in him by trusting and obeying him. So instead of ignoring the Spirit, quenching the Spirit, denying the Spirit, refusing the Spirit, we welcome him. We welcome the very presence of God in our lives and we listen to him and we respond to him. And that, my friends, is the actual life that leads to blessing and fulfillment and joy and peace and purpose. And quite honestly, that is what has sustained me for the last seven weeks. But you know me, I'm always looking for ways to illustrate the reality of what Jesus has done for us and who he is and what that means for us. And this is hot off the newswire from this last week, and I'd like to read this story to you as we prepare to take communion and to celebrate him together. It says this, Mr. Bob, 88-year-old hero crossing guard, dies, saving two kids from a speeding car. A Kansas community is mourning the loss of an 88-year-old crossing guard who died while saving two kids from a speeding car. And this is his picture on the screens behind me. Bob S. Nill, who was locally known as Mr. Bob, was struck by a black sedan Tuesday morning while ushering kids through his crosswalk at Christ the King Catholic School in Kansas City, Kansas. People said Nill died of his injuries at a local hospital. The sedan's driver was also taken to the hospital, but authorities have yet to release the details of his condition. The school hailed Neil as a hero in a statement posted on Facebook Tuesday. He had worked the crosswalk in front of the school for five years. Principal Kathy Fithian told USA Today on Wednesday that the two students, who were brothers ages 7 and 11, would not be here today if it wasn't for him. He gave his life so that others could live. He saved two boys and gave the ultimate sacrifice, she said. We are just so grateful that as tragic as it was, that it wasn't more tragic thanks to his selfless act. Didn't Jesus lose his life so that we could have life? Didn't Jesus die on a cross to remove our sin and to give us his righteousness so that we could have life? Doesn't every hero story like this point to the hero story of that? And what's so amazing about this story is that it's my story and it's yours. You're not part of the story because you've earned it, because you've merited it, because you have a great resume, you're a part of this story because God extends life and grace to you as a gift. All you have to do is believe it and make it your own. And communion celebrates all these realities and that's why we're gonna take communion now together. So I'm gonna invite our worship team to come forward. I'm gonna thank our online community for being with us this morning. And I'm gonna invite our servers to come forward and prepare communion And this is what we'd like to do. As we take communion here this morning, 
We always want this to be meaningful, not just a ritual, but meaningful for me and for you. And so one of the reasons why we sometimes serve communion like this isn't because we can't figure out how to do it and, you know, we think you should walk instead of us. We're doing it this way this morning in particular because we want to marry this to action because believing and knowing Jesus Christ is always married to action. It is never passive. It is always active. So here's the deal. As you come forward to receive communion, maybe you're one of those folks who you're not sure. You're not certain that you have truly said, I believe and I'm going to receive Jesus into my life. Then as you come forward, just between you and God, you ask for that. And for those of you here who do know and love Jesus, who do believe in him, as you come forward, would you think about how he wants you to trust and obey him today? How is he asking you to follow him? And once again, in many ways all over again, you say, I believe in you as you take these elements. And once we've served them to you, will you take them back to your chairs and then we'll celebrate communion corporately as a family, as a community? If there's someone around you who it isn't easy for them to come forward and receive communion, will you get it for them and take it back to them? It's all gluten-free, so you don't have to worry about that. We've tried to remove every possible barrier to keep you so that you can come and receive and celebrate. So let's do that together. Once everyone's been served, we'll take communion. So come forward and receive these elements. Last six, seven weeks when we were gone, I missed out on getting to preach one of my most favorite passages in Galatians, and Gary Brashears just did a beautiful job with it. This is one of my most favorite verses because it really captures the reality of what you and I hold in our hands with these elements and what they point to. This is Galatians 2.20, 21, and it says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. But he died to give us life. And now we remember and celebrate that life by believing in him. So let's receive these elements together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you would lavish your grace and forgiveness and mercy and love upon us. Thank you that we didn't have to earn it. You give it. All we have to do is believe and receive it and really receive you. And so God, once again, we celebrate a God who loves us so much. And because we've experienced your love, you ask us to love others the way you have first loved us. And so we take this second offering now, this fellowship offering, so that it will help people who are struggling to put food on the table or pay medical bills or have utilities turned off and all the other ways, Lord, that these resources are used. Thank you that you have blessed us so that we can be a blessing to others and we pray that that's exactly what would happen and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And so our ushers will come forward and receive our fellowship fund offering. And uh, we'll receive that and continue to worship the Lord together. So let's do that.
So do you? Do you believe that he is the way and the truth and the life? I, I hope you do. Because there is no other path to right relationship except through Jesus Christ and receiving him into your life. We have prayer teams off to the sides. They would love to pray with you. If you are a guest with us, once again, I want to personally invite you to come to Next just down the hallway. And let me tell you what kind of community you'll be signing on to if you choose to become part of what happens here. My wife and I have been overwhelmed, truly, by the cards, the calls, the texts, the emails, the meals. And we have some killer cooks in this church, I can tell you that. But it's been overwhelming, and we, we want to thank you so much. And if you're a guest with us, if you're choosing to become part of this church family, you know, we're not perfect by any means, but this church is the real deal. This is a safe place to find community and to discover and grow in Jesus Christ together. We hope you'll consider joining with this community. And to that, and I want to pray God's blessing over you. And as we prepare to go from here, I just, just want to give you a, a primer on where we're headed next week. We're going to pick up right where we left off, and this is such an awesome passage. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There's probably 30 sermons swimming around in that. We'll settle for one next week. And we hope that you'll get to be here with us. But let me pray his blessing over you. Lord, thank you that you call us out of darkness into light, that you want to adopt us into your family as your sons and daughters. And Lord, we thank you that we have just celebrated and remembered that through worship, through communion, through the necessary reality check and promise of your word. And so as we go from here, would we love this broken world the way you have first loved us? Would we extend grace? Would we show mercy? Would we have joy? And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. amen. So go and live for him. Hope to see you next week. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.